0: Well, it's great to be able to share God's Word with you this morning, and I'm looking forward to preaching what I feel like God wants to say uh, this morning. Um, I've called the message very simply an offer of greatness, Um, and God really does offer greatness to all of us, uh, and it doesn't look like what the world says is great, but there's an offer for every believer that we can be great in God's kingdom, and I'd like to explore that with you this morning. Uh, and we are in our journey, as you know, through Mark. We've arrived in Mark chapter 9, and I'm going to look at verse 30 to 36 with you this morning, and that's where Jesus kind of addresses this subject directly with his disciples. And so I'm reading from the NIV, and it says in verse 30, They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him into his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. It's just a beautiful passage uh, where Jesus really uh, highlights what it means to be great in his kingdom. And we're going to look at that now together. Uh, As you can see from the context of the the portion, Jesus is still traveling. If you remember, uh, there had been the experience of the transfiguration with uh, Peter, James, and John. And then after that, he uh, healed a little boy who was uh, ill from a very young age. And John so wonderfully looked at that scripture last week and encouraged us to see that it was as much about the father and his struggle to overcome unbelief as it was about the healing of the little boy. And I really would commend you to catch up with John's message if you missed it last week. But these verses here that we read this morning, they really do mark a milestone in Jesus' journey. It's a turning point Uh, Remember up to this time, he'd been trying to avoid Herod and the Pharisees. He didn't want to um, get into contention with any of them. And so he'd removed himself geographically and had been in the north of the country. And now he leaves the safety of the north and he takes his first steps towards Jerusalem uh, in an inevitable way, moving towards the cross and the death that he was awaiting. And uh, we see also in verse 32 that he gives a second prediction about his his death and resurrection. And still it says the disciples don't understand. And as as we've been looking at Mark, part of the, the big question of Mark is the unfolding identity of Jesus and how his disciples have struggled to come to terms with who he is and what it means for him as Messiah. And still here we see they don't yet fully understand. Um, what the true meaning of his discipleship is. And they're still thinking of this this, uh, messiahship in an earthly kind of way. And they're kind of arguing along the road and seeing themselves really as ministers of state in this new earthly kingdom that Jesus is going to bring. And I've got no doubt they're probably uh, arguing about who's going to have the highest position and who is going to do what. And so they haven't really understood fully what Jesus is talking about in terms of his kingdom, and what that means, and what it means as for him as Messiah. And so, this results in a serious disagreement between Jesus and his disciples, uh, and they are more or less convinced that Jesus is just being you know, pessimistic about his life, and he's not really going to die, and he's just being unduly concerned. Um, and so it seems that they're afraid to ask any questions, because remember the last time uh, Peter had confronted Jesus about um, this his prophecy of his own death jesus had rebuked him severely and said get behind me and he called peter satan he said get behind me you are not representing god's will for my life right now you are acting on behalf of the devil and so i'm i'm not surprised that they were a little bit nervous to ask any other questions because they didn't want to be rebuked by jesus again but along the way they've been arguing they've been talking about greatness And uh, I was thinking about that. It's it's often interesting that I think many people uh, do pursue and want greatness for their lives, but they don't want to admit that they're ambitious for greatness. Uh, And uh, at least the disciples are making obvious what is in their hearts. But do you notice that in Jesus' response, what he does, and, and the language is very interesting here, because it says that he sat down and he called his disciples to himself And then he began to teach them. And why that is so important is because when a rabbi taught as a rabbi, or when he was teaching his disciples, he never stood to do that. When he was making a pronouncement about something, he would always sit down and call his disciples to, to himself and then begin to teach them. And so it's a very pointed, lang- pointed language here. It's, it's saying to us that actually this is a moment of instruction that Jesus is wanting to make very clear to his disciples what he wants them to understand. And so he deliberately sits down and uh, he begins to teach them and discuss with them and say, hey, you want to know about greatness in, in my kingdom? Well, let me tell you what greatness in my kingdom looks like. It looks like nothing that you think greatness is. And he says some very amazing things that I'm, I hope um, we, can, we can understand this morning. But the first thing he says is quite plain in verse 35. He just says that in his kingdom, greatness is unlike anything of the world. Because he says if anyone wants to be first, that's to be great. He must be last and he must be the servant of all. So that's the first thing. Uh, greatness in God's kingdom looks unlike anything that the world has to offer in terms of greatness and secondly it's an offer that's made to anyone and this is amazing it's not just to special people it's not to just to gifted people or powerful people or wealthy people or politically minded people you know Jesus says it's available to anyone in the kingdom anyone who wants greatness in the kingdom can be a servant of all and that's the invitation is for every believer to pursue greatness for their lives And so I want to point out three basic things that Jesus says, and then we're going to look at a couple of examples where that is clarified through some stories that happen in the second half of the chapter, as Jesus clarifies this thing of what greatness looks like. And the first thing that Jesus says is that greatness in God's kingdom involves humiliation in some way. And uh, I want to clarify that word humiliation and what I mean by that. Um, It just says very plainly in verse 35, whoever wants to be first must be last. And so this is how it works in the kingdom. uh, As we pursue God's will for our lives, we somehow found ourselves in the midst of pursuing His will and wanting to do great things for Him, we somehow found ourselves uh, to be the last in the queue. (laughs) That's how it works. We are being made last of all, um, and that's that's is a very interesting thing that seems to happen. But that's how it works in the kingdom. Um, that actually you don't get to be first in the queue along the way as God is working in your life and will, His work is working His will out in your life. Somehow you find yourself seeming like you are last in the queue. And uh, I was just thinking about that. Um, you know, that's not just. Um, Idealistic in thinking the best of people, that people um, are, are not going to pursue ambition. What, what I think, um, as I was just reflecting on that, it, it's quite self-evident. In, if if you look at history, that actually the people that we most admire and and uh, uh, remember are those that didn't actually put themselves first um, in terms of trying to do things for society. Uh, none of the people that we might remember for those things said, how can I use society to further my own status, my own prestige? Rather, they said, how can I use my gifts to help improve society? And those are the people that we really remember with fondness and with these people did great things for the world. And so true selflessness is rare, but when we see it, we remember it and we mark it in our minds. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's talking about a selflessness in how we use our gifts for the kingdom. Um, Paul, too, knew what it meant to be lost of all. Remember, we studied Philippians recently, uh, Philippians 3, verse 8. Paul says he had suffered the loss of all things, and remember, he clarified what that meant. He, he said, well, I was, I'm a Jew of Jews. I was in the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Roman citizen. I've got this education. And he says, I do not boast in any of those things, but, but consider them all loss for the sake of knowing Christ. And that these things that he had suffered loss of were just things that people would, ne- would normally boast about. And he says, those things are of no value to me whatsoever anymore. And so... Greatness in God's kingdom uh, involves this kind of selflessness, this living for others, uh, and refusing to boast in anything that people would normally boast about to make sure that they are first in the queue. That's what Jesus is really saying. And coming off of that, the second thing he says is that greatness in God's kingdom involves serving others. And um, Again, verse 35, If anyone would be first... He must be lost and he must be the servant of all. Now that doesn't mean that you're going to end up living your life with people telling you what to do all the time. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying at all. But it does mean this. It does mean that you choose to live your life in a way that is other-centered and your life is dedicated, is given to being a blessing to other people. That's what it means to be the servant of all. And so Jesus is saying, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you have to live your life in a way that is not centered around your needs and what you want, but it's centered around the needs of others who need my kingdom, and you live your life through that lens. How can I be a blessing to other people? How can I serve others and give my life away so that it counts for God's kingdom? That's what it means to be the servant of all. That's the second thing that Jesus says. So we can see out of this that um, greatness in God's kingdom involves sympathy for those that are powerless. So Jesus takes this child uh, and brings the child into the midst of their meeting. And um, children in Roman society didn't have much standing at all. And even today, in some contexts, uh, children can be neglected neglected and ignored. Uh, children are dependent on others for their well-being. They're dependent on others to care for them and To have their best interests at heart. So in a real way, uh, children cannot do anything for us. We need to do things for children. They must have things done for them in order for them to live their lives uh, in a positive way. And so through this action of bringing this child into the middle of the meeting, Jesus is demonstrating something. And he's saying this, whoever welcomes the poor, whoever welcomes ordinary people, people who don't have much influence, people who don't have much wealth or power, people who need things done for them, as you do that, you're welcoming me. And then he goes further and he says, actually, more than that, you are welcoming God as you do that. So greatness in God's kingdom involves an attitude towards those that are despised, towards those that are relatively powerless in society, and Jesus is saying, no one is great in my kingdom who only chooses the powerful and the influential and the wealthy or the cool as friends. No church is great that only wants those kind of people as as its members. And so there's a warning for all of us here. It's easy to cultivate friendship with a person who can do something for you and whose influence can be useful for your life. And it's also equally easy to avoid friendship with the kind of person who inconveniently needs your help. So it's easy to carry favor with those that are great and have money and wealth and power and then neglect the simple, ordinary, humble person in the street. And so Jesus is saying, in in effect he's saying, that we ought to seek out those who can't do anything for us, but for those that we can do something for. And it's his way of saying that as you do that, you are seeking friendship with me, Jesus, and ultimately you are welcoming my Father as you do that. And I don't know if you remember uh, Matthew 25, 40, but remember Jesus says this there. He says, just as you do this for one of the least of these who are members of my family, you do it for me. It's another way of Jesus saying the same thing. As you welcome those that are powerless, without influence, you're doing it to me. And so let's remember that as we continue to build our church community together. Um, it's great that the, 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 there are cool people in our church. It's great that there are people that are, are wonderfully uh, full of life and all these kind of things. But we're not just wanting to build for the cool. We're not just wanting to build for the wealthy. We're not just wanting to build for those that have influence. We want all of God's people to find a home here. And so whatever your background, whatever your education, whatever your, your culture, you are most welcome in this family because God is building a family like His family is in heaven here on earth. And so... There are a couple of stories that come after this, remember this is the main thought that Jesus is trying to get, uh, communicate to his disciples. And there are a couple of stories that then illustrate exactly what Jesus is trying to say. And the first of those stories is in verse 38 to verse 41. And here we see, we read of a person casting out demons in Jesus' name. Um, and it seems that he's a true follower of Jesus, because it says he's doing it in Jesus' name. But the disciples are really unhappy. Why? Because this guy is not part of the inner circle. He's not part of the twelve. And it bothers them that this guy is doing these things in the name of Jesus. But the most fascinating thing is that Jesus is not bothered at all. And you see, greatness in God's kingdom is free from competition. It's free from rivalry. It's free from trying to get one up on other people. And Jesus, in fact, wasn't really interested in controlling everything that happened in his name. In fact, in verse 39, he says don't stop the man. Uh, and he says this, for the, the one who is not against us is for us. He's, he's actually saying to his disciples, actually, this guy, he might possibly turn out to be a great asset in the kingdom and um, someone who ends up being our friend. Don't stop him. He's doing good in my name. And lastly, Jesus says in verse 41, uh, that any work that is genuine in the kingdom will be rewarded. Because he says uh, in verse 41, truly, I say to you, Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So there's the first little illustration as Jesus says, talk to them about what it means to be great in the kingdom. There's a demonstration and Jesus says, don't worry about being competitive in my kingdom. That's not greatness in my kingdom. We're all working together for the same thing. It doesn't matter who's doing what. You celebrate wherever there's victory. Secondly, Jesus says this very powerful thing in verse 42. He says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and that he was thrown into the sea. You see, greatness in God's kingdom means that we do all that we can to avoid hurting other people. I found this such a challenge as I was preparing this week. Jesus is saying a really, really powerful thing. He's he's not even speaking to unbelievers. He's speaking to believers, to true believers. And he's saying it's better that you lose your life prematurely and painfully than to do damage to God's people. That's really what he's saying. He's saying a very, very strong thing. And I was wrestling with that as I prepared this week. And then I was referencing my friend Michael Eaton, who I thought I would quote. And he simply says this about these verses, which are very, very challenging. He says, The true believer, that's a Christian, may suffer serious loss because of his carelessness in doing spiritual damage to others. Better be drowned than to sin in this way. That's what Jesus is really saying. And it's incredibly sobering. I want to encourage you as you live your life, And as you think about God's beautiful bride, the church, let's not be those that carelessly damage other people in God's church. Let's love God's people. Let's be humble. Let's think the best of every single person. Jesus says, not me, Jesus says, better if you damage people in God's kingdom through carelessness, better that a millstone is is hung around your neck. That is a very, very strong language that Jesus is using. Let us be those that do all that we can not to damage other people. That's the heart of what he's saying. And that's what it means to be great in the kingdom, that we do all that we can to avoid the danger of hurting other people. And then thirdly, there's another little illustration as Jesus is uh, talking about this thing of greatness. In verse 45, I'm sure you know this well, it says this, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter your life lame than with two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and to be thrown into hell. Again, the language is incredibly strong. And I think what Jesus is saying is this, greatness in the kingdom of God take seriously the need to cut away anything that hinders God's work in our lives. And what, what stands out for me in these, in these verses is this little phrase where Jesus says, uh, it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God Uh, I don't think he's talking about the first step of salvation here at all. He's not talking about becoming a Christian. Remember in the main thought, verse 33 to 37, he's talking about what it means to be great in his kingdom. That's the main thought. That's what all these things are illustrations of. And so that's continuing here. So when he says uses this phrase to enter the kingdom, it means to experience the full blessings of God's kingly power and rule in your life. That's what he's talking about. He spoke, he's speaking about more than just our initial salvation. And so he uses this illustration of hands and feet. And obviously your hands and your feet are very special parts of your body. You can't really function without them uh, in, a, in a meaningful way. And so they stand, those pictures of hands and feet, stand as an illustration for us for the things that are very precious in our lives that perhaps are doing damage to us in, experience God's, in, in, in experiencing God's kingdom fully in our lives. And Jesus is saying better to cut those things away than to suffer punishment and to miss out on what God has for you in your life. Better to do away with them. Better to be serious about the things that are hindering your walk with God and do away with them so that you can experience the fullness of his kingdom in your life. And then the fourth thing I'd like to say is um, that Greatness in the kingdom takes seriously the threat of punishment. And here, you know, Christians have been encouraged in the last number of years not to speak about punishment. You know, that God is just a good father and that there's no punishment. And that's true. There's no punishment for us that those in Christ. But there is a chastening that comes, and Jesus speaks about this idea of chastening here. In verse 48, he says we can be salted with fire. And um, in the first century... Uh, AD, the word Gehenna was used um, to describe a chastening, a fiery chastening from God, as well as the idea of being punished eternally. And um, Gehenna can be used to mean we are saved through fire, as well as, as, as I've said, of speaking of a punishment that can never be reversed. So when Jesus uses this phrase here and says, everyone will be salted with fire... I think Jesus is more likely to be speaking about being purified through difficult circumstances than eternal punishment. That's what I, I think he's saying here. And so he, he um, finishes off that thought in verse 50, where he uses salt in a positive way, um, and he says, he makes a slightly different point. He says um, that sometimes the salt-like character of Christ in us can be lost. And so he says uh, salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make something salty again? And then he says, have salt in yourself and be at peace with one another. In other words, if we begin to lose our saltiness, we can expect a purification that God allows in our lives, the fiery purification of God's chastening in our lives so that we realign our lives again and become those that have a full heart after the kingdom. And so it's, uh, it's, uh, it's wonderful that Jesus concludes this little teaching by using the word salt in such a positive way um, to remind us that actually the greatest good in the kingdom is love. The greatest love is the highest priority. So he says, have salt in yourself and be at peace with one another. And the encouragement to us in all things is to cultivate good, healthy, loving relationships within the fellowship of believers, the church. And so in conclusion then, Jesus has been trying to teach his disciples about what it means to be great in the kingdom. He sat them down. He's discussing this with them as a rabbi. And he says, greatness in my kingdom involves not seeking to be first, but willing to be last in the queue. It uh, means that you are willing to live free from rivalry, free from competition. Greatness in my kingdom means involving Your life in a way that is living for others, that you are centered on being a blessing to other people and not just what is good for you. Greatness in the kingdom takes seriously the need to cut away anything in your life that hinders God's work in your life and God's holiness in your life, and that we are willing to embrace discipline and God's chastening that purifies us so that we remain salty and that we are really our salt and light to the world. And above all, greatness in God's kingdom involves cultivating love and aims for love as the highest goal in every situation. As I said to you in the beginning, this invitation, this is extended to every believer. All of us can be great if we embrace this in our lives. Every single one of us can live a life that is great in God's eyes as we walk by faith and trust the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's the invitation of Jesus to you today. How are you going to respond? Jesus wants you to be great in his kingdom and for his kingdom. What do you need to adjust in your life so you can begin to live that out? That's his call for you. That's his desire for you. That every single one of us will be effective and great in his kingdom. What do you need to do today to adjust to make that begin to happen in a greater and greater measure? as Jesus works through you, so you can be salt and light to this nation in which we live. Jack's going to lead us now in a final song uh, of of worship. We just talk about surrendering all to the Lord. Uh, And as after he's led us, uh, we're going to come back together and we're going to pray to end our meeting. But let's just reflect on these things as as he leads us now. God bless you.